want to welcome those uh, who are listening to us by our podcast or through our City Church app. We're in a series uh, on marriage from the book of Proverbs, and it's called Best Advice Ever. And before we get rolling, I just want to have everybody recite with me something that we recited last week. We're going to do it all through this series. And it goes like this. There are no perfect marriages at City Church, including mine. Now, look, that there weren't enough of you. I, I can see you. And there weren't enough of you saying this. So I want to see every lip moving. Uh, If you're married or if you're in any kind of relationship, I want you to say it with me. There are no perfect marriages at City Church, including mine. Most people, when you talk about a marriage series, they want techniques, they want tips. Uh, How do you make your marriage work? But the Proverbs is not that kind of book. It's not a how-to book. It doesn't doesn't give tips and, and techniques about marriage. It just says simply, here's the kind of person that you need to become if you want to make any kind of relationship work generally, or marriage specifically. If you want to make your marriage work, this is the kind of person that you have to become. And today, we're going to talk about the single most destructive, single worst evil that destroys many marriages, haunts every single marriage, and it will choke the life out of your marriage if you're not careful. And by the way, again, for those of you who are not married, I haven't forgotten you in this series. We're going to be, uh, the things that we talk about in this series apply to every kind of relationship. Maybe you're dating. Maybe you're engaged. Maybe you just have a friendship with someone. Uh, Maybe you have a professional relationship. Every kind of relationship, the stuff that we're talking about applies to. So so don't uh, tune out because it's a series about marriage. Stay tuned with this series, okay? So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to read a long list of Proverbs And I'm going to go through them pretty quickly, and then I'm going to come back and we'll comment on those. So let's start with Proverbs uh, chapter 11, verse 2. When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. A man, Proverbs 11, 12, a man who lacks judgment derides his neighbor, but a man of understanding holds his tongue. Proverbs 13, 10, pride only breeds quarrels, but wisdom is found in those who take advice. Proverbs 15, 25, the Lord tears down the proud man's house, but he keeps the widow's boundaries intact. 15, 33, the fear of the Lord teaches a man wisdom, and humility comes before honor. Proverbs 16, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Better to be lonely in spirit and among the oppressed than to share plunder with the proud. Proverbs 21, 4, haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked or sin, and then finally, Proverbs twenty-eight, twenty-six: He who trusts in himself is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom is kept safe. I don't think it takes a Bible scholar to see that these passages are about pride and humility. They warn us away from pride. They encourage us uh, toward humility. It's one of the major themes in the Book of Proverbs. This thing about pride being foolish. Uh, humility being an act of wisdom. So we're going to kind of take the same structure this morning that uh, these verses took. We're going to think, we're going to talk for just a little bit first about how pride manifests itself, how pride manifests itself. Then we're going to, uh, we're going to talk about why pride destroys marriages. And then finally, we're going to talk about what is the antidote to pride. Before we do that, though, 
I can imagine that there are some of you out there thinking, well, I don't know. I don't know if pride is really such a big deal. I don't know if that's as big a deal as Jeff is making of it this morning. I want you to listen to a very well-respected author, theologian, Christian apologist by the name of C.S. Lewis. And what he's going to say here, he's echoing the thinking of great saints down through the ages. Listen to this. He says, according to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all of that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation, and watch this, every family since the world began. I hope that as a result of reading that, you're, you're becoming convinced that pride is an issue that has to be dealt with now. Like now, in your marriage, in your friendships, in your dating relationship. If you're engaged, pride has to be dealt with now. The sooner, the better. Okay? So, now, so, so we've got a little bit of background there. I want to I talk for just a minute about, here's the first thing, how pride manifests itself. Okay? How pride manifests itself. And I want you to look at Proverbs chapter 21, verse 4. Haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked, are sin. Now, understand that this proverb is not saying that everybody who struggles with pride some is wicked. That's not the point. But what it is saying is that uh, wicked people who are characterized by, you know, they've, like they've denied Jesus Christ... What it's saying is that they are defined by, they're permeated by, their whole being is about having a prideful spirit. And this prideful uh, spirit manifests itself in three ways. First is this, at the very core, here's what pride is, a desire to be your own God. A desire to be your own God. If you look at the first word, verse 21, uh, first word in verse 21, it says, uh, the first word is haughty. Haughty. Now, that's a word that is largely out of use. You don't hear a lot of people say, uh, boy, she's really haughty, do you? I mean, you hear hoity-toity, but this is not the same word as hoity-toity. This is, this is haughty, okay? Um, the Hebrew word behind it means to be exalted. A prideful person wants to exalt him or herself beyond their appropriate place as God's creation. You understand this, that the right place for any human being is to be subjected. They're under the rule of their creator. But a prideful person, uh, they don't want to be under the creator. They want, to, they want to rule their lives themselves. They want to define their own lives. They want to define what is right and what is wrong. They don't want a God to define that. It's like I can find meaning, I can, I can find purpose to life without any relationship with God. And listen, I don't need Jesus Christ as my Savior because I'm a good person. And if I die, when I die, God's going to accept me as is because I'm a really good person. That's pride, okay? It's the desire to be your own God. Now, it also manifests itself in this way, the need to feel superior to others. That's pride. The need to feel superior uh, to others, to look down on other people, to feel contempt for them. I don't know if you guys realize this, but... Uh, beautiful people, rich people, successful people, intelligent people, famous people, they're not proud of being beautiful, rich, successful, intelligent, or famous. They're not proud of that. And why do I say that? 
Well, it's because what they're proud of is being more beautiful, richer, more successful, more powerful, more intelligent than the people around them. See, it's about comparing yourself. It's about being superior to other people. Pride is why a husband talks down to his wife and dominates her to make her feel lower, less than him. Pride is why a wife is never satisfied with her house, with her wardrobe, maybe even with her, with her husband. Pride is why a husband leaves his wife for another woman. Pride is why a wife can't take criticism without falling apart. All of this is because prideful people need to feel superior uh, to other people. Okay? Third way pride manifests itself is this. It's a constant, desperate awareness of yourself. That's the nature of pride. To be constantly aware of how I look, how I'm performing, uh, how I'm treated. Look at Proverbs 13.10. We'll put it up here on the screen. Pride only breeds quarrels, but wisdom is found in those who take advice. Now, I'm going to give you a personal example of that from my own marriage. Okay. Before Christmas, my wife... um, wanted me to fix, we've got these, there's these little timers next to our on and off, uh, you know, the light switches in the house. There's these little timers that uh, regulate the lights outside. So they turn the lights automatically on and off at certain times. The instructions to these little timers are unbelievably detailed. And there's lots of those little pictures that no normal human being can understand, all right? Because I can never understand them, my wife uh, decided that she would read them ahead of time, which meant that all through the process of fixing these things, she was looking over my shoulder, telling me all the way exactly what to do. Like, unscrew the top screw, Jeff. Be sure and turn off the breaker to this part of the house. Have you turned off the right breaker? Are you sure you turned off the right breaker? Now, a wise person would accept that as good advice from a helpful wife. But let's be clear. I am not a wise person. (laughs) So throughout the project, all of this advice made me furious. Like, like I know how to unscrew and Screw a screw. I know how to do that. Yes, I know. Lefty, loosey, righty, tidy. I got it. I got it. Now, see, here's the thing. All she was talking about was screws and breakers. That's all she was talking about. She was being so sweet. Screws and breakers. She just wanted to make sure I did it all right. That's not how I heard it. That's not what I heard. I heard it as, you're incompetent. If you were more of a man, you'd know how to fix this. Maybe we ought to call Robert Getty over to fix it. He could do it. <laughs> That's what I was hearing, right? That's what I was hearing. Because you see, see what it's saying is that prideful people are constantly, desperately aware of themselves. This is also why men can't take directions when they're driving from their, their wives. This is why. But let's be clear, this is not just about men. It's also why a wife changes her clothes three to four times before she walks out of the house. How do I look in this? Does it make me look fat? Okay. This is why women sometimes are overly sensitive. If their husband says something very innocent, like maybe let's join a gym, what do you think? She hears, <laughs> she hears you're really fat and you need to exercise. That's what she hears. See, see pride manifesting itself in this constant, desperate awareness of yourself, well, it breeds, it breeds quarrels. 
So pride manifests itself with this desire to be your own God, this need to be superior to other people, and then this constant desperate awareness of yourself, okay? That's how pride manifests itself. Now, okay, now that we've got that under our belt, let's move on. Let's talk about why pride destroys marriages, okay? Why pride destroys marriages. And really, there are two reasons. One is a practical reason. One is a cosmic reason. I want to talk about the practical reason first, okay? A proud See, this is practical. A, ha- a proud husband, a, a proud wife, well, they can't learn from their mistakes. They can't ever admit that they're wrong. They can't learn from criticism. Again, look at Proverbs 13.10. One more time. We'll put it up on the screen. Pride only breeds quarrels, but wisdom is found in those who take advice. Or again, Proverbs 21.4. Haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked our sin. Now, here's what that means, this thing about the lamp of the wicked. Here's what it means. Like at nighttime, back in those days, at nighttime, well, I guess it's still true today, you could only be, see by the light of your lamp. Like if you had a lamp or a flashlight or something, you only see by the light of that. If the lamp is yellow, guess what? Everything that you see is yellow. If the lamp is red, guess what? Everything that you see is red. So in other words, what this verse is saying is that pride distorts and it colors everything you see. Leading you to do things and to say things and react to things and to make decisions that lead to terrible results. This is why the last proverb, uh, 28, 26, says, He who trusts in himself is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom is kept safe. So there's all kinds of practical reasons why pride destroys marriages. You see that. But there's also cosmic reasons that pride destroys marriages. Proverbs 15, uh, 25. The Lord tears down the proud man's house, but he keeps the widow's boundaries intact. Proverbs 16, 19. Better to be lowly in spirit and among the oppressed than to share plunder uh, with the proud. Now, what, what are those verses saying? Throughout Scripture, there is this very profoundly important theme that God is especially concerned about the weakest members of society. Like He loves the lost, the loser, the widow, the orphan, the oppressed, the poor. Why? Why does He love them so much? Well, what the Bible teaches us, many of you know this. In fact, we recited it in the Apostles' Creed. The Bible teaches us that God exists in the form of a trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And what we know about that relationship that is at the very center of the universe, is at the very center of reality, is that that relationship is completely other-centered. Like the Father is always giving glory to the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's always giving glory to the Father and the Son, and the Son is doing the same the Holy Spirit, and God the Father, okay? That's what is at the very center of reality. Now, if that's at the center of reality, I want you to think about this. So you've got that kind of humility. That's why God cares so much about the poor and the oppressed and the lost and all that. But I want you to think about this. If that's at the center of reality, if one or both people in a marriage are seeking glory, Like they're trying to get over on the other person. Like it's important that I always be right and you always be wrong. It's important that I be seen as superior and you be seen as inferior. 
If that's happening, if, if, if one or both of the people have this haughty, self-exalted perspective on himself or on herself, your marriage, it's going to crash hard on the rocks of that reality that is at the center of reality. Humility is right at the center of reality. And if you're trying to live counter to reality, your marriage is going to crash hard. It's going to crash very hard on the rocks of reality. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Now I want to think just a minute about how that might happen in the context of marriage. Let's say that in a marriage, you know, both people have pride issues, but one person recognizes that they have issues in their marriage, as every couple does. Every couple has issues in their marriage. So one person realizes that and says, look, I want to seek counseling. I want to just get some counseling. We we need some counseling. It's not that our marriage is horrible. It's just that we need uh, some counseling. And the other person says, we don't need it. Counseling doesn't do any good. Look, we can, we can work our problems out on our own. We're, we're fine. And so the years go by without addressing these very critical issues in their marriage. And can I just, if you don't know this already, issues do not go away. They get bigger and bigger. And suddenly they become like, over time, they become like an elephant in the room until one day... 16 years later, you can't live with the elephant in the room any longer. And so finally, they decide, okay, we'll contact a counselor as a last-ditch effort. Long after they've ceased to like each other, let alone love each other, and more often than not, like the counseling then, way too late. More often than not. Pride, you see, it goes before destruction. There's a million ways that pride leads to destruction in a marriage. I don't have time to go over all of those, but uh, we have these things here at City Church called City Life Groups. They're groups of people that meet in homes, couples, single people, and what they do is they go over uh, the sermon that was just preached. And so like if you're in a City Life Group, I'm going to leave it to you to flesh some of the ways that pride can manifest itself in a marriage. And I kind of leave it to you to work, uh, to work that out, okay? Kind of let you talk about it in your groups. And if you're not in a group, you need to get in one. I mean, believe me, it'll be very valuable to you and to your spiritual life, to your marriage. So there's practical and there's cosmic reasons why pride destroys marriages, okay? So we talked about how pride manifests itself. We talked about uh, why pride destroys marriages. I want to talk now, as, as we kind of begin to wrap up here, I want to talk about what is the antidote? What's the antidote to pride? And if you look at Proverbs 15, uh, verse 33, again, we'll put it on the screen. It says that the fear of the Lord teaches a man wisdom, and humility comes before honor. Excuse me. You see it. In that uh, passage, right, the antidote to pride, it's, it's humility, right? That's, that's the antidote to pride. Now, 
I want to talk about that for just a minute. Um, that first part of the proverb that uh, speaks to the fear of the Lord, I want to explain that to you. That's a phrase that means to worship the Lord. It means to have a relationship with God, to bow yourself before him, to have a relationship with Christ. In other words, what this means is if you don't worship Christ, if you have no relationship with Christ, if you don't fear what an all-powerful God can do to your life, you're a fool. And you need to unexalt yourself immediately and subject uh, your life to Christ before you do anything else. Like it's time now. Get yourself off the throne. Get down before the cross of Christ and say, I need you, Lord Jesus, be my Savior. That's what that means. That's, that's wisdom. That's what this passage is saying. But I also want you to look at the second phrase. Um, it says, humility comes before honor. That, the, the, the word there is the, he, the Hebrew word there is the word uh, kabod. And it means, it means glory. Uh, glory is what makes God substantive. It what make, it's what makes him supremely important. It's what makes him like uh, uh, supremely significant. Uh, the word glory can also mean weighty. In other words, he has incredible supreme value. The whole world revolves around him. And what this is saying, what this proverb is saying is something very important that, as I said earlier, is at the center of reality. Here's what it's saying. Once you humble yourself and you begin to worship, uh, to believe in Jesus Christ, only then, once you believe in Christ, only then can you get a glory, a sense of importance, a significance that never fades. It never changes with circumstances. It never changes with your successes. It never changes with your failures. It isn't attached to your performance in any way because God sees you The moment that you've believed in Christ, he sees you through the blood of uh, Jesus Christ. And you receive then a value that can't be earned. It can't be argued for. It can't be attained. It can't be merited. And it also can't ever be lost. And this is what is at the center of reality. And it's what God has been after in all of human history. Now, what do, what do I mean by that? That he's been after this for all of human history. Kind of alluded to this a moment ago, but I, I want to say it in a different way this time. If you read the Old Testament, like if you go back and you read the Old Testament, you will find that through all of the stories in the Old Testament, the oldest son always inherits the family wealth and power. Okay? It was just part of their culture. In fact, it's part of many cultures uh, today. However, what you will notice in the Old Testament is that in every generation, God doesn't choose to work through the oldest son. In every generation, he will will choose the youngest son. Why? Well, the reason is he wanted to turn upside down the world's understanding of power and greatness. What What is greatness? He wanted to turn that upside down. And not only that, You'll also notice, if you read the Old Testament, in ancient cultures, in fact, it's, it's true even today, that the young, beautiful women always get the wealthy, powerful men, right? Yet in every generation in the Old Testament, you will see that God works through the oldest woman or the least attractive woman 
or the barren woman. In other words, the unwanted woman. Like God only works through, in the Old Testament, the girl that nobody wanted. The boy that everybody had forgotten. Why? Why does he do that? Well, think about it. When this God, with this self-giving love, the way that he relates to the other members of the Trinity, always deflecting, and uh, when he comes into the world to give his love to the world, he comes into the world as a poor man, born in a feed trough, like in this unimportant colony in the Roman Empire. And then he grows up, and in the end of his life, he's betrayed, denied, or deserted by everybody. And then he ends up dying this death of a criminal on a Roman cross. He comes into the world incredibly humble, right? That's why he does all of this. It was always to point to Jesus Christ, who is coming into the world incredibly humble. Now, I want to ask you guys a question. Let's say that someone here has like a long-term goal, okay? And your long-term goal is that you want to be significant and important, and you want to be remembered 2,000 years from now. Your goal is that you want to be the most famous and influential person that ever lived, You want a third of the people in the world to worship you and to build your lives around you. And you want uh, whole civilizations built on your teachings. Okay, let's say somebody here, if you have that goal, that is a big goal. Okay, that's a big dream. If that is your dream, if that's your goal, what would be your strategy? To realize that. Like how many of you would go about it by being born into obscurity? How many of you would uh, go about it by studiously avoiding getting involved in powerful political and economic networks around the world? How many of you would do that? If that was your strategy, or excuse me, if that was your goal, how many of you would say, well, you know what, part of my strategy is I'm going to allow myself to be tragically killed when my life isn't even half over yet? How many think that's the way to become the most influential and powerful and life-changing person in the world? See, of course, most of you would not think that. But that's exactly how Jesus did it. And by doing it that way, he makes look foolish the wisdom of the world. Rock stars and celebrities and hip-hop artists and politicians and, and, uh, and, and athletes who flaunt their wealth and bask in the glory of the limelight, he makes them look foolish with his humility. And middle-aged husbands who leave their wives and flaunt their new barely-out-of-high-school wife, he makes them look foolish too. And wives whose husbands can never make enough money and never buy them a big enough house and who continually criticize their husbands for it. Jesus, the way he comes into the world, he makes them look foolish for that. Christ's humility, you see, makes foolish the wisdom of the world. Now think about this. Think about this with me. What if Jesus had come into the world the way that we all would have done it, like ostentatiously with a lot of power, a lot of wealth, you know, a lot of pomp and circumstance? What if he would have come into the world like that? What if, what if, say, for instance, he would have come in as a great, celebrated, intellectual philosopher? What if he would have come into the world that way? 
Do you see many poor people studying Plato? Of course not. But they're studying the message of Jesus. And they're having their lives transformed and their marriages and their families put back together. Why? Because he came in humility. And they can relate to that. What if he came in strength and had this great ostentatious life and then after, you know, near the end of his life, he says, now you go live like me and you will be blessed. Well, the problem is then only the morally strong would have been able to follow him. But do you know something? Listen to this. Right now in Asia, Latin America, Africa, Christianity is sweeping. It's just sweeping across those people and it's growing at 10 times the rate of the population. Why? Because Jesus brought salvation through weakness and humility and poverty and dying on a Roman cross for your sins and mine. That is why the gospel message, you see, it's good for everybody. It's good for the rich, it's good for the poor, it's good for the middle class, it's good for everybody. This is why it's sweeping the world. It's not just for the intellectually strong, it's not just for the morally strong, it's for everybody. The message of the gospel is, it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what you've done, if you believe in Jesus Christ, that he died on a cross for you, and you say, Father, receive me and accept me, not because of my life, not because of my performance, not because of my goodness, not because of my holiness, but because of what Jesus has done on the cross for me, at that moment, at that moment, you've moved out of religion, you've moved into the gospel. And at that moment, God looks at you and he values values you above all the gold and silver and jewels that lie beneath the earth. But how do you get, how do you get that kind of unconditional glory and regard that is not based on your performance at all. Well, I want to tell you something. This is hard, what I'm going to tell you. There are some gifts that are utterly insulting. And you can only get them if you accept the insult, right? If somebody gives you a gift, like uh, if they give you a gift, you unwrap it and it's mouthwash, what are they telling you? The only way you accept the gift, the only way you can accept the gift and get it is if you accept the insult, right? You have to be humble to get the glory. Let me tell you that the gospel is this. That you are so sinful and flawed and prone to evil that nothing less than the death of the Son of, the God, uh, the Son of God on the cross can save you. That's the news. It's insulting, isn't it? It's insulting. Some of you, especially those of you up in the balcony, you're saying, dude, that's primitive. That's way over the top. Like, that is really insulting, and I understand. You, you, you don't have the humility to receive this gift yet. But let me tell you something. This gift that Jesus Christ wants to give you, value, regard, substance, um, importance, significance that isn't attached to you at all. It's all attached to what Jesus did. You can, le- you can win, you can lose, you can be successful, you can be a failure. Jesus wants to give that to you. I want you to understand this. That that gift was achieved through radical humility. And so it can only be received through radical humility. 
But once you have humbled yourself before the cross of Christ, you can begin to imitate Christ's humility in your own marriage. See, you're free to do that. By serving your wife or your husband instead of dominating them, by being willing to admit that you're wrong and that you're not right all the time, by being willing to ask for help, for advice, or get marriage counseling, or join a city life group or something, by accepting criticism without constantly being reduced to ashes, and by not blaming everyone else except yourself. And you can do all of that because once you believe in Christ, you've been given all of this significance and all of this value, all of this worthiness, and it never changes, you see? And so you can stop trying to prove your value and your worth all the time. You know what we are? We're like people that are constantly trying to prove, we're trying to marshal evidence uh, in front of some court that says, I'm valuable, I, 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 I'm significant, I'm worthy, I'm important. But you know what? If you don't have a God, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, let me tell you what, you're in an endless litigation. You will never stop marshalling all of that evidence. You're constantly litigating your value, your, your importance, your value. But you don't have to do that if you know Christ. It's already defined. It's already stated. You can stop trying to prove it all the time. And you won't be perfectly humble all the time in your marriage. But, but when you fail, you can always go back to the cross and remember that your value is not based on your perfection, but Christ's. That's it. That's the antidote to pride. Imitating the humility of Jesus Christ. It's the antidote to pride. And it's what will make your marriage everything that God intended it to be. Humility. Would you bow with me for prayer? Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for um, your humility. Your humility makes our own pride look foolish. It makes foolish the, the wisdom of the entire world. Lord Jesus Christ, as we come before you today, I pray that there would be people here in the room this morning that perhaps they've never belt, uh, knelt at the foot of the cross before. They've never acknowledge their own imperfections, their own sin. They've never asked you to be their Savior. Lord, I pray that today would be a day that some of the people in the room this morning pray that this would be the day that they would kneel before their cross in the privacy of their seat and say, Lord, I need you. Be my Savior. Lord, for all of us in the room today, pray that we would learn from and be inspired by your humility. That, that, that our motivation to demonstrate your humility, not guilt, not shame, and certainly not pride, that our motivation would be simply love. Love for you and love for the other people in our lives, especially our spouses. And that we would demonstrate humility to them, that we would serve them in the way that you served all of humanity. Lord, make that a reality in our lives. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.